Welcome to the Growth Equation Podcast. We're your hosts, Brad Stahlberg and Steve Magnus. All right. Welcome back or welcome to another episode of the Growth Equation Podcast. I'm your host, Brad Stahlberg, with my good friend and co-host, Steve Magnus. And we've got a really special guest on the show today. It's a little bit longer of a conversation, and that is simply because we could have gone on forever with Katie. So Steve, um, why don't you introduce Katie, and then we'll get to the conversation. Yes, we've got Katie Arnold on the podcast today with a wonderful conversation, as Brad mentioned. Katie was the 2018 winner of the Leadville Ultramarathon. She's been a longtime contributing editor and writer to Outside, and she just released her book, Running Home, which is a memoir on running, grief, anxiety, parenting, and basically the act of living. And I've just got to say the conversation was one that I thoroughly enjoyed and was amazing. Just a note, Brad had some microphone trouble about two-thirds of the way in, so he became a listener and was texting me questions, so he got his questions in, but just be aware of that if you hear Brad drop off. So without without further ado, let's jump into our conversation. Katie, it's so great to have you joining us uh, on the Growth Equation podcast. Thanks for making the time. How are you this morning? Oh, thanks so much, guys, for having me. I'm excited to be here. I'm doing well, all things considered. Yeah, yeah no complaints. Good. That's uh, the all things considered. I know it's an interesting time. So there's there's so much that we want to talk with you about. There's your beautiful memoir, Running Home. There's your career as a runner, as a writer. Um, your whether you you call yourself this or not, your parenting expertise, as you write a column on parenting for Outside Magazine that I love and has been helpful to me. But before any of that, I thought that a good spot to dive in is um, an email that you sent me about a month ago around how more and more you're starting to think about both sport and life in terms of the word intimacy. Hmm. And I thought that was really interesting. So could you elaborate a little bit on on what intimacy means to you in, in how you have been thinking about it and how you've come to think in that way? Sure. Um, Yeah, this is an idea that I've been sort of thinking about and, or for me, like feeling my way into more than sort of um, thoughts, it's sensation and kind of awareness in my body and mind. But um, intimacy really um, is kind of what I think of as intimacy as a relationship that you have with something. Um, and for me, what I'm trying to do in, in my writing and my running and my parenting is to create kind of a deep relationship or intimacy. So in the case of my running, I've really been grappling with this idea of performance um, that, you know, you see that term everywhere. And in the last year, I think kind of as I've become more interested in in studying Zen and understanding some of the ideas of Zen, it's this idea that performance feels so outwardly based. And um, it implies that someone is watching and that you can be measured. And 
sometimes I have trouble with that as a motivating factor in my running. And so what I realized is the reason I run and I've always run since I was a child and um, is to have a relationship with my body and my mind. And so it's that intimacy that I seek. Um, as, as a long distance runner, obviously, we have lots of time with our own mind. And um, it's a really good way to get to know ourselves as um, people and humans is to spend time with ourselves outside. And so um, I like that idea of sort of shifting it from performance, which to me, you know, feels like chasing time and, you know, um, podium places and sort of like these external accolades um, when what I really seek and crave from my running is this intimacy with myself, my mind, also my body. I do, I love to feel strong in my body and, and sure, um, and challenged, but confident. And, and then of course the intimacy with the natural world and the landscapes that we run through. Um, and so when those three things are working, when I feel sort of connected to my landscape, in other words, I'm not racing through it or just staring at my, you know, flicking my wrist and looking at my watch all the time. Um, when I'm paying attention to the world around me, I'm always in a better flow state and I always have better runs. I feel better, you know, if and when I do check my watch, I'm always faster than I thought. And so that's really what I'm going for. And, it, and it's true for writing, too. I mean, an intimacy with my mind yields, you know, a more true story. Um, and, and then, of course, raising my kids. I'm trying to raise them to have a relationship with their minds and their bodies as athletes and um, movers in the world. And then very important with their environment and try to raise kids who are aware of our human impact on the world. I love it. There is so much good in what you just said that we need to unpack. And I'm not exactly sure where to start because I have, you know, notes on notes just from that, those couple minutes. So I'll, I'll start with this. In that, in what you just described, you mentioned like feeling your way into things, the relationship with your body and mind, body awareness. And it comes across very clearly that you have like developed or you have this skill um, to be able to listen to and be in tune with your, your mm -hmm. mind and body. Mm -hmm. Is, is that something that, you know, you've just had, you know, that is just part of you or something that has developed and honed over time, do you think? That's a great question. I think it's a little bit of both. I think um, very early on in in my childhood, and I write about this in Running Home, I had this awareness of that connection between the body and the mind or my physical self and my imagination. And um, I don't know how I lucked into that. Like, I think it was just you know, kids back then, this was the late 70s, early 80s, were left to their own devices more. And so we had to come up with things for ourselves to do. And um, one of the things I did was I liked to pretend that I was a spy. And so I would kind of move around my neighborhood <laughs> on my bicycle or on my feet looking for kind of what I called clues. There was no mystery, of course, but I was making one up. And as I did that, I I learned that when I move my body, I move my mind and that I had this creative, 
you know, flow of ideas and stories would come to me when I did that. Um, and so that was just luck, I think, um, luck and kind of that sort of benign neglect of parenting back then of like, my mom just shoot us out the door. And like, as long as we came home alive by dinner, like that was cool. And so we had to, you know, we had to fill our time. And and so that was an early discovery. And that's always stayed with me. Um, that to, to really move my imagination and to tap into my imagination, um, is I'm that's best done for me outside and in motion, whether it's riding my bike, like right now, I'll just a lot of times just go for a fun spin around the neighborhood, just kind of cruising, like wandering a little bit. Um, and, and that's how I get, um, my mind out of that sort of analytical thinking place into the feeling place. And then part of it to answer your question too, is, is I have worked on that. Like, as I became aware of it, that this was this thing I had, and I had been doing this since I was a child, right around the time, not coincidentally that I did my first run when I was seven. Um, and that right around the same time is when I really could identify to myself that I wanted to become a writer. So the two have always been linked. But then as you just, you know, as you become an adult and sort of study it more and you have more awareness, then you can cultivate it deliberately. So, you know, you're a very successful ultra runner, uh, one Leadville, et cetera. Um, did that change at all? when you got into competitions or were you able to maintain that, that same kind of mindset? (laughs) That's the, you just hit the crux of the um, really fine line and delicate balance that I feel like I walk as sort of a creative person in the world who's running for much of my life, running slash pursuit movement you know, adventure has served my writing, right? So like for many years in my 20s, I I ran up this mountain in Santa Fe called Adelia, um, that I write about in the book almost daily. Um, it was a great workout, yes, but really what I was doing was writing while I ran kind of, and not even consciously or deliberately, but working through ideas. And so running served my writing. And um which isn't to say I didn't love running and I, I felt that I, I had some, you know, skill at it. Um, but it was, it wasn't competition was never at the forefront. And so then after my father died, um, and running was really the only thing that worked to heal my super strong and deep anxiety that I was dying too. I be, you know, I was running longer and longer distances and that's when I decided to find out, well, what, how far can I go? in this, in this distant world. And right. So as soon as you start having success in a quote unquote performance, you know, arena or competition, it, it's harder to maintain the privacy and sort of the primacy of, of that, you know, running as a creative expression. And so I'm constantly having to find my center on that um, because the ego loves when you win, (laughs) And it loves like when you have these accolades and, um, but that can pull you away from that deeper reason, that intimacy. So I, I work on it. I wouldn't say I struggle. I was just about to say I struggle, but I'll reframe that and say I practice, you know, almost daily kind of coming back to my deeper reason why I run. And, and sometimes the competition is the driving factor with Leadville, you know, that's, 
certainly I gave it full focus and it felt amazing, but I, um, I wasn't really focused on winning. Let's just say that I was focused on completing it and having the full experience. And it, and it turned out that I did win, but that was not, you know, I think if I put the, the competition and the goal ahead of the feeling and the sort of relationship, um, I'll, I lose the joy quickly and the motivation. So let's, let's dive into Leadville just for a couple minutes here. For listeners that don't know, the Leadville 100 is a 100 mile race. It's done in one go (laughs) and, uh, it's through the Rockies. I believe it has either Leadville or Hard Rock. You would know better than me, Katie, the, the most elevation of any ultra marathon in the States. Like what do you end up climbing in the Leadville 100? I think it's like 15,000 feet. So Hard Rock has it beat by a lot. Okay. Um, Yeah. But, but still it, a lot of climbing. It's it's a it's a really grueling event. And Katie won. And you wrote this essay. You won in 2018, right? Correct. And you wrote this essay for the New York Times in 2019, um, where you talked about how a big part of your training for that race was just the durability of being a mom in a very active family. And... I think at least how I interpreted that, and I, I'm so glad I get to ask you, is that you're just constantly on your feet. You don't really have time to think about yourself. When you get dark moments, well, your kids are calling you, so you have to you know, very quickly be able to shift into a more selfless mode. Um, but it also kind of came across that like you didn't train that hard. <sighs> so like, say more. And again, this is just my interpretation of the article. Because I remember reading that and thinking like, oh, like this is great. Like You can just be a super active mom and win the Ledva 100. And then my more, my more like scientific brain's like, no, I bet she also trained really freaking hard. Uh, yeah. I, so a couple things where you were talking about like being the selfless mom and kind of like having to just um, like always be, you know, running this way and that. That is true. But I will say like I, to reframe it a tiny bit, like my favorite thing is to be outside and in motion. And so it, this is like just my natural state, my natural habitat, like how I would choose to spend my days. So I would orient my days around those things rather than like kind of being that like harried mom, you know, responding to things. So we just have our family framework so that we're just kind of always out cruising in motion, you know, being in our bodies. So it does, it's not like that over stressed mom. I mean, I, I am sometimes, but it's, it's more of like a choice of how to be, but to your question about training. Yes, of course I trained. I didn't have a plan or a coach. So I was make, you know, kind of making it up myself. Um, but it, 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 my training also had these different components, which was, um, these buildup races. So I did, um, I can't remember if I did a 50 K I did a 50 mile and then I did a hundred K and then, oh, and then I did the Leadville training camp, which, and, and when I say what I'm about to say, it, it'll make sense a little bit. Like I didn't sign up for the 50 mile until like two days before the race because, I just didn't have a plan, but I felt like I should do this 50 mile. And, um, and so I was like, 
I guess I'm ready. And a lot of it is I have to listen to my body and also my intuition. And so that makes it hard to like map out everything in advance. Because for me, if I don't feel it, I can't do it. Or if I do do it, it's not going to be a happy or probably successful experience. So a lot of it that going on gut means that I am making these like last minute, like, oh, right. Like I I feel ready. Like I'm going to do this 50 mile. This is the right thing, you know? And, and so I have these things along the way that I, that help me progress and know that I was more or less on track. Um, and so in order to run a 50 mile, like I had to have been doing, I probably, you know, the long run before that was 32 miles. So you're right. Like I for sure was building up in a conscious and deliberate way. Um, but the all the other stuff on top of it, you know, the walking to school and taking the long way home, the extra bike rides, like all that is just fun. And that to me and having that playful element and that feeling of freedom that I, you know, I can do that and I can do that with my kids, you know, adds to sort of the emotional bottom line of like really boosting my, my um, readiness because I love what I'm doing and it never feels like a grind. I shouldn't say never. Of course, there's hard days, sure. and like doubtful days of like, oh my God, am I ever going to do this? But because I oriented around things I love to do and just pack more of that in, it creates more time on my feet, right? So more durability, um, more mental stamina. I would also train. I loved what I did when I, so I spent the month before Leadville at sea level in Canada where we go in the summers which kind of makes no sense, but I wasn't going to stress about it because we always do it. And it's a really sort of sacred time of the year for us as a family. And so of course I would go. Um, but I just was like, well, I guess this is speed training time because I'm at sea level and there's like not a single hill. (laughs) And so, and, and so you kind of have to make do with what you have. And that goes to this philosophy I have is like, run where you are, run with what you've got. And, um, and so, yeah, that's really how I did it. So it was a combo of, you know, concerted, you know, build up, but then also pack in all the other good stuff. Yeah, there's a quote that I wrote down, and I forgot if it's from your book, Running Home, or if it's from this essay in the New York Times. Um, but, you, you know, you'll tell me anyways. The quote is, my strategy for Leadville was simple, if unconventional. Everything counted. Walking with my daughters, Pippa and Maisie, to school riding my bike to the grocery store, taking the dog out after dinner, afternoon spent on the lacrosse field, coaching the girls team in our Santa Fe community. Yup, everything. All training. Mm-hmm. And my question for you is, did you ever rest? Because, you know, especially in sport, um, hyper-competitive people, and I'm not saying that that's what you are, but it's a big part of Steve and I's first book, Stress Plus Rest Equals Growth. And what I'm hearing, or at least starting to hear from you, is it was more of just like this constant lifestyle of movement that gradually built and built and built. Uh, but did, was a part of your training or is a part of your life structured periods of rest? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, yes, I I do rest. I have a harder time at rest. Um I shouldn't say that because I, you know, I love to write and I'm a huge reader. So I, it's not like I have, I'm this frenetic person that has to always be moving at all. But um, yes, I would definitely have a rest day every week. And um, I think because my, I would count like hiking up, you know, our little mountain in town 
with the girls as, you know, a rest day when, you know, you're hiking with kids and it, you're not moving at any kind of clip. Um, I, you know, I was able to be more um, sort of generous with what I called rest, probably like coaches or people who follow metrics and like use those apps that tell you how much recovery time you need are like cringing right now when I say that because it's not scientific and I probably should rest more. Um, but I will say the thing that I was resting from, this might have something to do with it, um, is that I, my book had been finished. So I was not pushing hard on both fronts. I had finished writing, running home. It was sort of in the production phase. And so I could focus and so maybe that's mental rest, right? But I could focus on uh, Leadville. And I think that made me successful, at least mentally. But yeah, I need to get better at resting. Um, but I also think because I'm not super rigid with a training plan, you know, and doing like specific workouts all the time and um, pushing, pushing, pushing that uh, it worked for me. Yeah. And I think there's another important lesson there too, is that stressing out about resting is not resting. So if you are like super um, just anal and freaked out that you didn't spend the entire day on your couch eating organic avocados with compression socks on because you walked your kids up a hill, walking your kids up a hill with a light heart is so much better for your recovery than trying to control every minute of your day so your heart rate variability hits some arbitrary number. Uh, And I think that's a really important message for people that are listening, that sometimes we overdo recovery to the point when it becomes more stressful than it's worth, particularly if you are a parent and you have kids, because kids don't know a rest day. Right. That, 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 what you just said sort of stressed me out because I was like, oh my God, should, do I need to be monitoring my heart rate on rest days. No, no, no. I don't think so. You won the Leadville 100. So whatever you did, you were doing just fine. But um, yeah, I think, I think, I think just keeping an open mind. And like, I also have this philosophy, like when I'm feeling it, like I want to go. And then my body will like, will also tell me on those days where I'm just like, if I can't feel motivated to ride my bike up to the trail or if I'm just not like, I don't know, I just keep saying feeling it. If I'm just not feeling it in my heart that I want to do it or if I'm dragging with, then that's a sign I need to rest. And so sometimes I'll have a few days in a row where I'm feeling it and I'm like, I just want to go. I, I can visual, visualizing is huge for me. I can see myself in the mountains. Like I can feel being there. That's my signal that my body like wants to go. And that's a productive kind of push. And then the days where ugh, it just feels like I'm not into it, the, that becomes a rest day. You know, I'm going to come back to this, which is, it just seems like you're an expert at listening to your body. (laughs) And if I'm putting my coach's hat on, like that's something we try to coach, try to teach and all that stuff. But a lot of people are really bad at it, Um, especially nowadays, I think, with the ability to measure measure and monitor almost anything. Um, that takes away our ability to listen to our body. So if I was saying, hey, from a coach's standpoint, I would say don't 
get heart rate or anything like that because it is very, very clear just listening to you talk, whether it's on running or on life, that you're very in tune with the um, sensations and feedback your body is is giving you. So, you, you know, keep, <laughs> keep a pen in that. But I, I'm curious if we venture into the world of ultra running and maybe Leadville as well, it comes very clearly across in your book that uh, not only are you uh, adept, as I said, at listening to your body, but you've developed this ability to be alone in your head for a long time and deal with the thoughts or leave the thoughts behind, as I think you mentioned as well. Um, can you talk a little bit about how that, what that process looks like, maybe using Leadville as an example? Of being alone with my thoughts? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, well, I'll talk about it in relation to sort of being in that hyper um, acute grief state after my father died and where I became convinced that I was dying too, um, which is really sort of <clears throat> the crux of running home is kind of that um, crisis that came about from losing my father with whom I was very close Um and Katie, just to give listeners context that haven't read the book, this happened in late 2010, correct? Yes, 2010. And, be- and before this episode, uh, it struck me from the book that you were really kind of a lighthearted, fearless girl and then young woman. And your father, whom you were very close to, um, again, just context for listeners, was diagnosed with cancer. And if I remember right, it was only like 10 weeks from his yeah. diagnosis to his death. So talk about just having your world completely blown up and, and you had an infant at the time too. Um, so just wanted to give that context for those that haven't read the book. Yeah, thank you. That is good context. It was um, like a kind of perfect storm of grief, which obviously when you lose someone you love, um, for sure, some postpartum. I had a three-month-old when my father died, so um, I was kind of in that hormonal stew of everything, like t- turning topsy-turvy. Um, and then probably a little bit of like midlife kind of mortality action coming in. So it it created in me this <clears throat> conviction or certainty that I was dying, and just a little bit of on that is that I didn't realize, like I knew that grief was an emotional state, you know, you felt sad, you, whatever, all those things. Um, But I didn't know it was physical. And for me, my grief manifested as pain in my body. So like aches in my joints and kind of this heavy weight on me. And as you said, because I am so attuned to my body, I became afraid that that was a signal that physically there was something wrong with me, that I was ill. And now I know that that is not an uncommon grief response is to sort of take on the pain of the person you lost. I didn't know that then. And so I, um, because I have this very vivid imagination, which as a writer has served me well my whole life, you know, is um, a true ally. But when you become, you know, when you get into this sort of state of anxiety, the imagination then can really work against you. And so I was, you know, imagining that I had, you know, if I had a pain in my elbow, I was like, I had elbow cancer, a tumor there, you know, and it just, it 
this was the pattern for about 18 months where sometimes I had two things at once that I was dying of. And I laugh about it a little now, but it was, you know, I could not talk my way out of it. Or, you know, people couldn't reassure me that this was not true. And um, so I tried lots of different healing and um, therapies and some of them worked and, and some did not work, but really what worked was running, um, was moving on my own two feet through the wilderness. And so not, you know, running around my neighborhood. I mean, I've always been a trail runner and being, you know, running or any kind of physical activity is a way to go deeper into nature for me. So it was just natural that like, I would want to run into the mountains or the forest. And so to your question about what it's like to be alone with your own mind, in those early days when running was just like survival, it was the only time that I could sort of move beyond my fear thoughts. And it didn't happen right away. Like the start of every run, my anxiety was super heightened. It was like, oh my God, am am I going to die of a heart attack today? Like, is that what is, you know, is that what's wrong with me? Or, you know, so it, it sort of made the anxiety worse at the very beginning. But then as I ran that rhythmic, repetitious, physical activity sort of lulled me into almost like a moving meditation where I the thought dropped away and I was just my body running and my body running was strong. Like, and the body holds that wisdom of like, Oh, actually you're healthy, Katie. You know, like if you can run 20 miles, like you're healthy. And I wasn't running to prove to myself I was healthy. That was sort of a byproduct because I'd get home and be like, like, maybe I'm not dying of cancer because I did just run 30 miles. But really it was the running was that sort of meditative thought free place that I could get to. Um, and that's why, honestly, I ran longer and longer was because I just wanted to prolong those stretches where, you know, my imagination wasn't going haywire. And it's it's interesting, too, that um, particularly for individuals experiencing really bad health anxiety, physical activity is on par, if not higher in efficacy than both medication and therapy. Mm-hmm. And a large part of that, at least researchers hypothesize, is um, a gold standard way to treat anxiety is exposure and response prevention therapy. It's something we've talked about on this podcast before. Mm -hmm. Basically, you expose yourself to the thing that you're scared of, Mm -hmm. and then you prevent the response that reassures you. So in this case, if you start every run and you're having what you think are heart palpitations or high blood pressure, you're going to have a stroke. Well, the response to reassure yourself is to stop running because you're sick. But if you prevent that response by continuing to run, over time, you retrain your brain that, hey, actually, nothing's going to happen. I can do this. And then as you're explaining, eventually, you give yourself the chance to actually settle into a state where you're enjoying movement. Um, so it's, it's super interesting. The linkage, sometimes people say like, you know, I ran, I didn't do therapy or I did therapy. I didn't run. Um, but particularly for anxiety there, there's a lot of overlap. Gosh, uh, I wish I'd talked to you 10 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was like fumbling around. Like I'm, really- I'm very lucky. I'm no therapist, but I've worked with a phenomenal one for my own anxiety. Um, so what you're saying makes a lot of sense. Did you, um, did, did you work with a conventional therapist um, in terms of, of managing some of that, whether oh, yeah. we call it grief or anxiety or yeah. just kind of the ugly mess of the two together. 
Yes, I have. I mean, I've had a therapist for many years who's been amazingly helpful. And, um, you know, but what I would find is that when I was in his office, everything seemed kind of manageable. And I, you know, really, it was like learning to recognize the anxiety and sort of know it. And again, just going back to our original conversation, becoming intimate with it, however uncomfortable. But what would happen is that when I would leave the office, you know, it would kind of, my imagination would take over again. And um, so in between sessions, which was, you know, 13 days, I had to manage it on my own. And so I did that with running. But for sure, the two therapies that work the best for me is just conventional, you know, talk therapy um, and then acupuncture. I found acupuncture during this time. And um, actually, I'd found it right before I was for, you know, 13 days overdue with Maisie, my second daughter. And my doctor was like, well, we need to induce you. And I said, well, just give me one more day because I wanted to do it naturally if possible. And um, I went to an acupuncturist who I, you know, I had heard would do induction or could help with that. And I started having contractions on the table. And so <laughs> I found her right before just, you know, happily coincident um, before I really needed her then for this postpartum grief piece. But the acupuncture and the running and the therapy were like the magic formula. So quick follow-up there, um, two-part question. At what point did you get over the hump of the like paralyzing grief anxiety? And I'm going to use a, a hyphen between those two things because it sounds like they really were wound up together. Mm-hmm. And do you still have periods where those emotions come on in an intense way right now? Mm, great question. I'd say it's it was about 18 months from when my father probably first got sick because that's when I first started feeling it was when I, in that 10 week period, when I was flying back from Santa Fe to his farm in Virginia with the baby um, and kind of being with him is when I started to first feel those physical symptoms. Um, and then, so I think it was about 18 months is when I feel like I finally kind of popped out of that fog. And that's really how I describe it in the book is like that grief fog um, where you periodically pop out and you think you're through it. And then sort of like the fog descends again and you're back in. So I had moments where I kind of felt like I was out, but all told, I think it was about a year and a half. Um, And, and yeah. And do I still, I certainly still have periods of anxiety, you know, exacerbated by um, the global health pandemic. Um, and what I learned is that the, the running wouldn't cure me of my anxiety. Um, like it was probably always in me and I had just never had that sort of catalyst or that precipitating event to sort of let it out. Um, because I think it might always be part of me and not in a, not in a defeatist way. Like I can't ever get through it, but I, I see that it, still recurs, but it, it has less intensity and it lasts just, you know, it's a shorter duration when I have those moments. And so really what I've learned and what running has taught me and and also meditation, um, is, has taught me how to manage it and to sort of see it. And I describe this in the book, like now I kind of see my anxiety, like 
I recognize its patterns. Like I know it's little wily tricks and when it comes and it's like, you just see it like an, an old acquaintance that you're not like entirely jazzed to see, but you're like up oh, you again, like, Hey, you know, and, um, that kind of awareness helps me. It helps me sort of defuse it. So it's not, so, uh, I don't get in its grips, but for sure, you know, COVID has been a challenge, um, for me and kind of, it, it has brought some more of that health anxiety up again. And, and the anxiety really like in my, my version of it is like, I skip a lot of steps. So like I could have a little pain. And as you said, I am so aware of my body, which as an athlete is a great thing, but as someone struggling with anxiety, it's also like a hard thing because you just notice every sensation. So my anxiety would skip all the logical steps or all the logical scenarios or sort of the like annoying, but not like dangerous things and go to the far end right to the extreme worst case scenario so that I, I know that about myself. So I can say like, Oh, Katie, I'll label it like in my mind, like that's catastrophic thinking or Katie, you just skipped like six steps. It could be X, Y, and Z, you know? Yeah. I'm so glad you brought it up. And that labeling has such, is such a powerful thing. You know, you mentioned COVID and I think a lot of listeners can relate right now. Um, on feeling that anxiety and uncertainty. So I'm wondering if you could dig into just your process where you mentioned there, if you experience anxiety, maybe digging in so listeners can kind of understand or maybe take away something um, that they could actually be do on, on how to handle that in regards to COVID. Yeah, it's, um, you know, there's a, several things that I do. One obviously is to limit my media intake and the news. Uh, and, and that's a fine line because, you know, it, my anxiety, it helps my anxiety if I'm informed, but if I'm inundated with the bad news, like I'll, again, I'll skip all those steps and, you know, you'll be like 40, you know, 40 year olds are dying of this. And like, I'm going to, too, you know, and I'll just go to that. So it's a fine line. A lot of time, like early on in the pandemic when it was coming and, you know, you could feel it coming. And I, you know, I had my like sensors up from like when you first heard this random report on NPR in like January, like I, I could feel it coming. I was just mindful. And like we would turn off the news in the morning you know, turn off the radio or like turn it to some like cheesy classic rock station and just as like a, as like a protective thing. So limiting the intake or knowing what your triggers are, like knowing that it's helpful for you to hear sort of um, like what's happening in the world, but it's not helpful for you to hear these extreme stories. Um, Same thing with Twitter, like learning early on that I had to take that off my phone because you're going to hear all the, like the worst extremes on Twitter Um, and, and I don't mean worse, like some is good or some are bad, but just like the extremes, which triggers me. Um, and labeling is something I've just discovered. Like my therapist has probably been telling me to do this for years, (laughs) but like, I have to come to it on my own, right. As we were talking about earlier, like it has to come from within me. And so I was, we were backpacking earlier this summer with my kids and we were sleeping at, you know, 11,000 feet. And I had that like chest thing, you know, the heart palpitations. And I was thinking like, oh, one of the things with COVID is like people have these heart attacks and just drop dead. And like, is that going to happen to me? And lying there in my sleeping bag, being in the wilderness and sleeping out is one of like my most favorite 
things and like where I feel most at home in myself, but it can also trigger that anxiety. And so I was lying there with those both things happening at once, like loving being in the wilderness and then being afraid because I was in the wilderness. And in that moment, I think I came up with that line, like, this is catastrophic thinking. And again, like, it's not rocket science. Like, I probably could have learned this from a book like 10 years earlier, but I came to it that way in a very authentic way outside. And it's helped me since. So labeling. um, And then, you know, finding things that bring you joy and like, are playful um, has been really helpful to me during COVID. So um, again, whether it's like going out with my kids, they both got rollerblades this summer, which was like possibly like a bad idea gene situation. Like it's COVID. Do you want to be sending your kids to the ER with like, you know, broken bones on rollerblades? And, but we, they had a ball. And so we would go out every night and they would be learning to rollerblade, which was like comedy. And, um, so just like joyous, happy things kind of fill up your days with as much of that as a protective buffer against just the very real, like heartbreaking bad news and the suffering that's going on in the world, which thank goodness hasn't touched us directly. But I just want to honor all those people who have been affected like personally um, and how, you know, what a, what a hard and difficult time this is. But so those are some of the things I do. And then just being out, like for me always, this is not a COVID thing, but just always being outside is the best place for me. The, you know, the sunshine, the vitamin D, the fresh air um, kind of just, you know, shores up my, my happiness bottom line. Yeah, that's, you know, those are some great tips. Um, I'm 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 noticing some themes like as I listen to t- listen to you talk about like awareness and like understanding your your body and then also in there you mentioned like playful right and in addition to your book and your work and your running you're also very well known for um several articles that you wrote on parenting essentially and parenting and competition which is competition seems to be another theme so i'd love to dive into that a little bit on you know all these lessons you've kind of learned and this this you know struggle we'll call it or this this balancing act which i think you called it earlier on like you know this kind of flow doing it because you love it versus this competition how do you translate that into, or what are you seeing uh, with, um, you know, children in sports and that balance of, you know, for the love for playing versus the competition? Well, yeah, um, I'm, it's really interesting because I, I'm not an expert. So I, I haven't studied this. Like my children are kind of the guinea pigs and my own childhood is kind of this touchstone for me on how I was raised. Um, so it's really about for what I think is important for kids is to help them develop an intrinsic love of something, um, of a sport or pursuit or adventure. Um, and and if we're going to just speak, I guess we'll talk about it with kids with being, you know, athletic or in motion, like having a relationship with movement. Um, and so, you, I, I, 
I think at last, and there have been studies done, and I have written about this, that like when it comes from within, when it is that intrinsic um, passion or that's such a you know controversial word, but like love or motivation, when it's coming from within, you're much more likely to stick with it for longer. And um, when it's coming from sort of your parents or that the community, like you know these kids who have to be on the travel team or start early with competitive swimming, and if it's coming from the parents, I think the child never has that chance to develop that feeling, that relationship with it. Um, that is really theirs alone. And it has nothing to do with whether they win or lose. And again, I use my own childhood as sort of a model because um, I started running early. Um, and I write about this in Running Home. And it was a total lark. My dad, um, I didn't live with my father. He lived in Virginia. Uh, my parents were separate, divorced. And I lived in New Jersey. But one weekend we were down at my dad's farm and he was like, Hey, you know, what about running this 10 K race? And my dad was not an athlete. He was a national geographic photographer. And so he had a very sort of adventurous spirit, but it was not a competitive spirit. So he wasn't suggesting it like, let's go race and see how you do. And maybe you'll have a career as a runner. It was just like, he this sense like something fun to do on a Saturday morning. And, and he didn't run it. Like he did not run the race. I, and that's one of the funniest things about the story in my memory is that, you know, he just set us out on our way, my sister and me. But that really set the tone. He was waiting, of course, as a photographer at the finish line to capture like the moment in all its glory slash like, you know, humiliation because we finished last, I'm sure. But, you know, that really set the tone for running is my p- personal thing. Like my dad, after that race, was never like, you got to race this again. Are you going to join cross country or track? Or, you know, like it was the seventies and eighties. Parents really didn't do that with their kids. They didn't kind of voice their own ambitions on their kids. Like we tend to do now. And, um, and so I did keep racing. Like I went back and did that race every year again, more as sort of like a lark, Um, I never really trained for it and we did get faster and started winning our age groups. And, you know, so we had a progression and, um, but from that, I, I learned that I am a runner, like, and that, that, that sort of desire to finish and to stick with it. And that resilience that comes from running and doing hard things. And, you know, even when you're like crying and limping along the road, like we probably were, like we finished and that really went into my uh, muscle memory and my emotional sort of the fabric of who I am that like I do these things. And so I just continued to do them because of me and, and none of my, my, I had four parents, none of them were like, you got to do this and compete. And, and so that was able to preserve it for me. And I think sometimes I've had regrets like, oh, I wish I'd done high school cross country or track or college, like probably could have been pretty good. But then I think, no, maybe like it was a good thing that I maintained this private relationship with it. And I think that's partly why I'm still finding joy in it and discovery in it into my forties. So that's what I try to do with my kids just to bring it back to the kids is like, give them every opportunity to experience these things, like be my dad and be like, Hey, what about trying this? But then don't have expectation around what they will do with it. Um, I'm so glad you said that because as someone who's worked with high school kids, 
coach college athletes, it seems like the um, the trend is to go in the opposite direction. And I think, you know, you brought up some great points there. And almost, it, it just seems like you were allowed and you're allowing your kids to kind of explore and, and see what interests them and then see what they, you know, need to stick with. I think I remember at the very beginning, you you kind of said, you know, you were allowed to fill your time as a kid. And that was the experience that allowed you to, you know, figure some things out. And I can't help but think, you know, in current <laughs> current uh, parenting or current day, it seems like parents tend to fill their times for the kids instead of allowing their kids to figure it out. Yeah, I think that's a tricky thing. I mean, more there's more um, way more structure to kids' lives because in many cases both parents are working, and so the activity becomes the sort of um, the place the child is supervised. And there's, you know, my mother worked, but she was always home by three. So she was like that little eyeball in the window, like they sort of watching if something happened and we could just like run home, but we were still unsupervised outside and we could have these relationships with our bodies, which then for me, and I think for many kids, you know, because I know I'm not alone, be, can become a relationship with sort of our imagination, our creativity. Um, and so I really encourage that. I mean, yes, there are things that I'm like with my kids, like you're going to do this, like family hikes. We do, we've been on this great kick where every weekend we do a big peak around here in Santa Fe. And um, that's like, you know, this is a family activity. We're going to do it. Like there's not, you know, right now at their ages, they're 10 and 12, like they're not getting to say, no, I'm not going. Um, but you know, am I saying like, go join? Well, right now with COVID it's, you know, it's sort of moot because there aren't sports here, but you know, like, am I saying like, go join this cross country team and run competitively? No, but you know, movement is, is part of our family life. It's non-negotiable. Our kids have grown up that way. They get it. I think they feel better and, and are happier in themselves when we are outside. And so um, I, I just, I try to give them opportunities, but then let them decide what, you know, what they'll pursue. That said, I, I do believe team sports are important. So like, and I wrote about this in a piece for outside that got a lot of attention, which is like, at what point do team sports start taking over sure. your family's kind of outdoor adventure life? And so there's a fine line. It's just like, okay, you know, you don't want to, like you said, you don't want to be the one sitting on the sidelines. Like three out of four of the family members are like on the sidelines and one person is moving and having that experience with their bodies. And, you know, um, and so it's just, it's a fine line, but um, yeah. I think accidentally my parents just gave me that experience. You know, it wasn't like a premeditated <laughs> thing for them. <laughs> It's just a right. So I just want to point out to listeners, Brad is having some microphone trouble. So he will be um, not on the rest of this, but he'll be texting me on questions if he has any. So, you know, diving into that like parenting style uh, or that parenting approach, you know, you've obviously thought a lot about it. You've obviously been able to keep a very active lifestyle. I'm wondering if you could give listeners uh, maybe your three concrete rules or principles or can be however many you want on, on parenting for an active, happy kind of family environment. Okay. Yeah. Great. I love this question. 
I'm, but I'm like, wow, three. Okay. What are my three? I would say like move every day. Right. And you know, there's guidelines, the, um, pediatric, is it, what is it? The American pediatric association, there's recommendations. So one hour a day, and I try to get that for my kids and, um, or have them get that for themselves rather. Um, and I think there was some study out like not long ago that showed that I think 80% of American kids don't get that each day and that there's even a gender split that more girls do not get that than boys, um, which really caught my attention. So move every day, um, have some structured um, independence around movement. And so for my kids, um, we really early worked on um, getting it so they were able to ride their bike safely or first walk safely to school and back. Not everyone's able to do that based on where they live, but that was an easy way to both establish that sort of give them some movement and fresh air. And I think um, with that independence and the independence that I had as a kid and that I think a lot of people my in my age group had more of. Um, and so that we, and it's a pain, you know, it takes work. It's training. It's really practiced getting them to where they're safe, you know, and they, they can be trusted to be safe on their own, you know, moving around town, but it's so worth it. Um, and, and then I would say for, for people who are just starting out on parenting, like start early, right? Like my husband and I made a conscious decision when the kids were born, someone gave me this great advice, which I'll pass on here. And she said, start off as you mean to go on. Meaning like if you want to take your kids outside and have adventures and be in the mountains and like be active when they're, you know, taught, you know, sort of adolescence or, you know, grade school kids start early. So start off the way you want to go. And so that for that you know, for my husband and me, that meant that we were taking our kids like on wilderness trips and like when it was hard, when they were babies and when we were changing diapers on the tent floor um, and, you know, critics. And there were many who responded to this article I wrote about taking our kids on rivers early, very easy rivers, like obviously without rapids or consequence. Um, but they were, you know, our critics were like, the kids won't remember and that is pro- probably true, like on an intellectual level, they won't have memory of that, but it will become the norm for them, which makes it easier to do throughout their lives if they've always known doing it. More though, it's it was training us. It's a pain in the butt to take your little ones out. Like, I'm not going to lie. You've got all the gear, you know, like you've got the pacifier dropping in the dirt, but so we had to really train ourselves that this was worth it and that we could do hard things with kids. Um, and so that I think starting early, though it's never too late, but starting early, you know, does help if only to train yourself that um, you can do it. I love the train yourself. That's a nice uh, switch of the, you know, the kind of framework that we normally have. Yeah. Um, so switching gears a little bit. Uh, from parenting, I want to go back to or go to writing because, you know, listening to here, reading your work, it seems like running slash outdoor activity lifestyle is very deeply intertwined with your writing and your writing process. So uh, I'm wondering if you can kind of, um, you know, maybe take us back on when you got 
into writing and if it was intertwined with activity or not. And then two-part question, going forward to today, what does your writing process look like now that you have parenting, running, et cetera, all of this going on? Good questions. Yeah, I mean, I got into writing, um, like I, as I mentioned early, like when I was very young, I knew probably from like age six or seven that I wanted to become a writer. And that was because I was a really big reader. Um, and, and I just always, that's what I always wanted to be. And partially too, I, I write about this in, in running home is that, um, my, I was a child of divorce. And back then divorce was such that like, I, no one told the kids anything. And, and so I think by the nature of that experience and then by my own, you know, curious disposition, like I was always trying to figure out what had happened and like why I had, you know, been moved away from my father in Washington to New Jersey. And like, you know, and so I became a storyteller early on, I think in a way, I mean, I think part of it is just who I am, but then part of it was in response to um, this dramatic life change where I was trying to figure it all out. And so um, that's when I first started understanding that being outside and moving through the world, like helped me move on the page. And, and I would write stories in my head, like, and I, this is a scene in the book, but like, I'd be shooting, I had, we had this basketball hoop in our backyard and I was like, a, not a good basketball player. I didn't have any dreams to become one, but I would just shoot baskets. And as I would do my, my layups or whatever they're called, when you like hit it from the corner, it goes in, I would have like these elaborate stories forming in my mind. And I never wrote them down, which was cool because I didn't think I, I realized, I think I must've known that I didn't need to, that it was actually just the process of story making in my head that was important. And so it's always been linked. And then, you know, fast forward to my, my early twenties when I first moved out to Santa Fe to work for outside, um, and I was starting to write stories, short pieces then, but I would go run up the mountain and not intentionally try to work on my stories and while I ran. But as I ran, sentences would sort of shift, words, you know, better, I would have an idea for a better word. So it was a very natural process that running became a way that I would write. And then I would get back to my car and kind of like throw myself into my car and like find my notebook and write down what I'd remembered. Because as I ran and I had these sentences coming to me, like I didn't have a phone back then, you know, I, I, so I would just have to hold them in my mind, like almost like planes stacked up on the runway, like one thought, then the next, then the next. To, so I didn't forget sort of what my ideas were. And I would just pour them onto the paper and then it would go into my articles for outside. And then really like the next evolution was um, after my father died, I always keep notebooks. So I write in notebooks. People would call them journals. I just call them notebooks. But like, I filled notebooks when he was sick of kind of that experience, not for any reason, like not to be for something. It was never, I never, it was never premeditated that I would write a book or like this would become something, but it was just the capturing of the experience. Again, the storytelling is part of who I am and, and certainly a gift that I got from my father. 
as a photographer, like he was always reminding me to pay attention. And he always had a little notebook in his pocket. And um, he, you know, he captured those moments that so often many people miss, but as a photographer, like he wanted to be there at that moment. And so I learned that from him. So, so really I had these notebooks filled with things and then running through my grief, I would also come home and like running would sort of elicit a memory about my father. And, and we haven't talked about this, but as I was grieving my father and kind of going back to settle his affairs, I found many old documents of his in this deep archive of not only his images, but his writing that revealed to me a person I didn't know. And some of it was quite painful, these sort of secrets. And, um, so I was writing all this down and, but it was, and then running through it. And then it was really like a couple of years after my father had died and I'd been doing the running and the writing in my notebook free of expectation. I think that's a really important point. Um, uh, that there, it wasn't for anything. It was for me. Um, and that I realized that I was writing a book. And so that felt to me very true um, to my own process is that, again, it's like running. If you put trying to win Leadville at the top of the page and then try to work backwards from that, like I'm the person who will, you know, that will paralyze me. But if you put, I want to run through the mountains all night and, and experience like that feeling of being at high altitude moving in my body, if that becomes the primal reason you're doing it, then the, you know, doing well or even winning can flow from that. And so um, I just wanted to write everything down about losing my dad and to, so I didn't forget. And it really became this moment where I realized, oh, this is a book. And so that's really my process now is to try to start from the feeling I want or the experience um, and not. And, and sort of be open to where the process takes. Yeah, it, is, it comes across very clearly that you're kind of a, a let it come type of person instead of the forcing it, uh, which again comes back to that kind of competition uh, thing that we've been circling around. I, I'm curious, you know, you've for a very long time been a, a very accomplished magazine writer. You talked about where the book came from or came to you from and, and, how you got to that point. Um, but as, as a first book, like a memoir is in my opinion, one of the most difficult things to do because you have to, you know, sing at the same time, be vulnerable, but not come across as lacking self-awareness or, um, not having your ego take over the page. So what, did you learn from like going through this book writing process that maybe you didn't have or experience when doing the shorter uh, form magazine writing? Yeah, I learned really to trust the process and that my process may look different from other people's. Um, you know, like I know plenty of writers who outline, like who map out the whole thing in advance. And I knew that could never be my way one, because that's not really how I work. And two, because the story itself is one of discovery and sort of being in that fog of grief and kind of feeling your way through. So I, I knew if I imposed this sort of structure on the book before it was written, that that would not be true to the story and the feeling of the story. So, um, I learned to, to really push back when people, um, you know, who I was working with would be like, well, 
what's your outline? Like I wrote a very unconventional book proposal that didn't even have a chapter outline. And I didn't know it was unconventional because it just kind of poured right out of me and it felt very powerful. Right from the start, I felt like the story had a life of its own and that I was not really um, controlling it. It was more that it was this thing and I just needed to bring it forth and kind of guide it. And so that helped me not get in my own way and kind of like there were most of the time writing it, it was the sort of flow state of like letting it come forward. And then there'd be times when I hit the wall and, and, and that was most always because I, my ego would come in and be like, I have to fix this. I have to like control this, this story. And rather than, Oh, that's my cue to step back and listen. Like, and I had this little note above my desk, like, listen, show me. And I, and that's what I would try to invoke from the story. Like, show me what, where this is going. And, and so it was helpful to try to keep, you know, practice stepping out of the book's way uh, that, which isn't to say like, of course I had to do lots of revisions and then I had to be strategic, like uh, to work on the pacing. And I, I flip flopped sections around, but in the flow of the writing, I tried to trust my voice and that the story, you know, was true and had something to say and, and to let that energy come forth. So, um, and, and a lot of that's being patient. Like, you know, you talked about being the person who like, lets it come. Well, you know, that can be, it's, I love it. And that's definitely my way. And, but, you know, it also can take a while, right? It'd be probably more efficient time-wise to just like decide what you're going to do and like go after it strategically and create it. Um, And, but for me, it's sort of letting things arise um, and letting the world arise through me rather than like creating things, which isn't to say I'm passive. Like I, and I'm not suggesting people be passive. It's a different, um, it's a different thing. It's like being intentional and showing up every day to do the work, which is not passive, but releasing the goal or this fixed idea of a result that you want. Um, and so, that I'm always just trying to, you know, have that fine line between controlling everything, to, you know, micromanaging it down to like where there's no joy left and allowing for the mystery. Because there were so many mysterious moments in the book where like literally I would get a box of things from my stepmother that were my father's that that all of a sudden unlocked some piece of him that I didn't know. And those things emerged at like you know, almost magical moments. And if I had had a really pre, you know, if I'd had a, an idea ahead of time of how the book would go, I might've missed all that. So it's staying open to kind of the, the mystery and it's happening all the time. I really believe those serendipitous moments or kind of uh, the magic is out there, but we get really distracted by our phones or our to-do list, or we get really fixed on things. And and I think we miss that. I love that. Uh, So Brad had a question and I'll ask it for him, which is um, in many ways, Zen training and meditation are opposite to being a writer, right? Writing is all about concepts and breaking things apart and putting them together. Zen is about getting beneath the words. Uh, how do you think about that relationship between almost your kind of meditation and writing? Oh, that's such a good question. Right. Because Zen is like, it's beyond words. It's beyond this sort of 
um, rational um, explanation. It's this knowing feeling. Um, and a lot of times it is beyond words. It's the, it, it's a feeling I have when I run on the mountain. And I, I had this last year where I, um, the whole Zen concept of time, which is like this moment contains all moments that ever happened. If you just read it on the page, which I, I did, and, and, and then I meditated, you know, I just sat with it. You, your brain has a hard time understanding that, or it comes up with lots of arguments why that can't be. But if you, if you sit with it as I sat and kind of just put it into my body and then ran with it, again, not intentionally, like now I'm going to go running and try to figure this out. But I had this moment on the mountain where I passed this runner and he, you know, disappeared and I went on my way. And, but I felt that he was still in my moment. And then I, and then that went to like, I felt that my father was still in that moment alive, even though it had been nine years. And so it's the same, it's like the writing, like, how can I explain it? Like I try to absorb those feelings when I sit and then somehow translate that to my writing. And it's, um, it's really about, you know, bringing the feeling into my writing. So it's not trying to sort of like explain Zen and I'm, I'm working, this next book that I'm working on really does, it is trying to, um, bring Zen into it, but I, I'm grappling with that very question because you can't, explains then you have to embody it right and so um i think for me leadville was really that moment when i i embodied that and i embodied that feeling that the whole universe gets behind you to support you and that um the mountains have energy and i was running with the mountains energy and so um yeah, it's just, it's like a practice to figure out how to not over explain something um, and to, to rather feel it in the writing. And uh, yeah, it's, it's an interesting one, but I sit every day, you know, I don't sit for long, like maybe eight to 10 minutes. I have much more stamina for writing, for running and writing than sitting. But um, I find that when I sit, I can hear that inner voice much more clearly my own intuition. Um, and that helps my writing become stronger because when I write from that place versus the sort of trying to please other people or write from my like editor or agent's voice, you know, that's not a true expression of myself. And so the sitting does help me, um, find yeah, it's very that. clear the, uh, inner connection between, you know, what you do and running meditation writing is, is so clear and it comes across, uh, wonderfully in your explanations. Um, so before we wrap up, I just had a couple quick hits here of things that I had taken note of that Brad had taken note of, um, task as we going, you, I believe you said you had a sticky note on your computer reminding you of, you know, with a quick saying or on your desk is it, can you go over, is that just one or do you have multiple kind of sayings there that I'm just curious <laughs> what those are? I have multiple. I wish you could see my, I'm in my writing loft right now and I have lots, lots of sticky notes um, that, you know, just help kind of center me and remind me 
Um, I'm just trying to think of some of them. Well, one of them is like everything leads you to a new place. And this was early on. I got this um, and I had it taped to my ceiling when I was in my 20s in Santa Fe and I was going through this hard time. And um, and that's been a touchstone for me is like everything is leading you somewhere. Like it may not really be where you think you're going and there might be all these detours, but like each experience leads to something. And that always helps me um, make decisions of like, well, do I really want to go do this? Or um, should I do this? Or if I did something and I was like, oh, that was kind of annoying. But like, where will it lead me? And oftentimes you don't know, you know, for months or years looking back and be like, oh, that was the moment when this led me, you know, here. Um, And so I think that sort of captures the spirit of, um, I guess just curiosity and openness that I have and that I've always had my whole life of like being willing to try things because you don't know where they'll take you. And a great example um, that your listeners might, you know, resonate with is um, I guess it was 2007 outside asked me to do a profile of the ultra runner, Dean Carnassus, um, who was doing a, a 50 marathons in 50 days in 50 States project. And he was coming through Albuquerque and did I want to, you know, profile him? And I, I said, sure, of course. And I'm going to do it while running with Dean because that's my way is to sort of just be in someone's world and kind of immerse myself into what their lives are like. And so I met Dean and I was only going to run a few miles with him, but, um, you know, Dean is so captivating and the miles just ticked by. And I ended up running my first marathon totally accidentally with my little tape recorder around my neck, like interviewing Dean as we ran. And, um, yeah, I'd been like, Dean, I'm definitely going to peel off after six miles. And he's like, okay. You know, and then we get to this point and we turn around and I was like, well, what's this? And he's like 13 miles you know, now I have to run home. Like there's no, there's no way back. And, um, but my point is, is that Dean, that, that experience with Dean was really formative in a way that I didn't know at the time. And, um, I, you know, Dean sort of shared with me his secrets to running, um, long distances. That was my first exposure to an ultra runner. And he was like, you, you know, his secret is not a secret. He tells it all the time, but you can always run farther than you think you can. You're stronger than you think you are. And um, I think I just, I must've filed that away in that little like nook in your brain where, you know, you just don't know it's there, but it's working. It's kind of working. It's magic in you. And um And then, you know, it was like five or six years later after my dad died that I kind of retrieved that and and Dean's words came back to me. And so my point is that just trust that these, you know, the things that we do in our lives, even if they don't have immediate results or there's, you know, not some immediate payoff or direct route somewhere, like they are working and they're kind of just stewing in you. And and I, I say that because we live in this world of like instant gratification, right? Where we want instant results. We want to know what it's all about. And and a big theme of running home is that like, it's okay not to know. And it's okay to be in that sort of, it's not comfortable, but to be in that eddy, as I describe it, that swirling, like not knowing, you feel like you're going in circles. I think a lot of us feel that way right now with COVID. I do for sure sometimes of like, there's no races. I'm not really sure where my energy's going. 
But what I learned from the grief and the running and also writing the book is that like those eddies are so um, generative and can be so fruitful if you just have the patience to sort of let them evolve as they will and take you where you're going to go. And so, you know, Dean's words came back to me and became sort of a touchstone in my approach to ultra running. And, you know, I wouldn't have never, I would not have expected it at the time. You know, I was impressed by him and, and sort of awed as you would be. But I didn't immediately go home and formulate a plan to become an ultra runner. I'm just kind of blown away by your ability to take, you know, um, to have, again, such clarity and take a lesson away and in, in something like that. I mean, it's, it's very clear that you are, you have life principles and philosophies and are able to, you know, explain them incredibly well and keep them front of mind. And it's just, again, I've got pages of notes just listening to you. And I think yeah. I'm going to have to listen to this, <laughs> our own podcast again, which is something that I never do because I hate hearing my own voice. So I the same. I will say that like er, pretty early in, well, I guess sort of around the same time, 2006, when I, before I met Dean, but before I had kids, I did sort of, I was working with a co like a life coach and I had, we had that, um, sort of, um, assignment. I had the assignment of, of writing my life's values, which, um, was so helpful and has become that touchstone for me of like, when you have to make a decision about something, like I just go back, like, is this in alignment with my values? And it be, and this was early on when life coaching was like, what, what's a life coach? Um, it helped me because I, that was at the time in my life when I knew in my heart that I wanted to leave my, de- my desk job at outside to write full time, to really bring it back to my dream as a child to be a full-time writer. And it was scary because I had this very known and and good career and, you know, um, some good income and my ego liked the title. Um, And so it was working in me for a while. I knew I wanted to leave, but I was scared. And so I, I put in a lot of time up front, sort of mentally getting ready to do it. And, um, one of the exercises I did was to do my values and, you know, at the time, and they haven't changed, my values were adventure, expression, and community, which now can sort of evolve to adventure slash like endurance, running, expression, creativity, writing, and community along with family. And so, you know, all those years later, 14 years later, the values are still so strong in me. And, um, they help guide me with decisions. So it becomes easy to be like, no, I'm, I'm not going to do that, be- you know, because it's not, doesn't feed my values or yes, this is totally in alignment. Um, and I will say just a quick shout out to Dean, like talking about how I was wrestling with trying to take that next step in my career and really believe in myself. The one thing that did come out of that run with Dean very unexpectedly was um, three weeks after I ran with him, I gave my notice at outside. Like I just, that was what I needed to sort of believe in myself that I could do this thing that I'd been wanting to do for years, my whole life. And 
Um, so that was wow. a really and it's very clear that your values aren't just slogans; they're they're what you live. And I think that is, yeah, in today's yeah. society, something that you know we need to put a pin in and emphasize is that they are true for you and they center your life. And as Brad and I wrote about in peak performance, like having those values and that purpose and having clarity surrounding that is so helpful, not only from a, you know, performance side, obviously, but from, you know, just the decision-making side as well. I, Katie, I have so enjoyed this conversation and I know Brad has too. Um, You have some amazing and deep insight. So I just want to thank you for, you know, having this for listeners. Please, please check out her book, Running Home, which is a fantastic read. And I promise you that you'll walk away with even more insight. So Katie, I just want to thank you for taking the time and being vulnerable and sharing your wisdom on uh, the podcast for others to uh, learn from. Thank you, Steve and Brad. This has been great. I, you know, it's always so like rewarding uh, and fulfilling to talk to others about these, you know, these things that I think about and feel so deeply and, and just, you know, to bring my heart to the conversation and to feel you both bring yours. So yeah. And as I said, what I I love is we, you like capture the nuance of some very complex things and there are no quote unquote right answers. And I think that came across very, very well and very clearly. So thanks again. Uh, If listeners want to find you or your work, is there anywhere they should uh, go to or check out? Yeah, you can check out my website, which is katiearnold.net. And um, I have, you know, info about my book, which is just out in paperback. And um, there's an audible audio book version, which I narrated. Um, I also have info on there about um, running and writing flow retreats that I lead. And we had our first one right before the pandemic started in late February. And um, really great time. running in, you know, we, this one was in Utah, but we, it's all about sort of finding flow in our everyday lives and then bringing it into our writing or whatever creative pursuit or, you know, our entrepreneur, um, life or our parenting. Um, and it's, you know, these retreats are about finding sort of establishing daily practices that, that prime us for flow. And so you can find information about that on my website and then obviously on social media, um, I'm at Katie Arnold on, on fantastic. Instagram we'll put links to Katie's book and her website and all her social media in the show notes. So if listeners uh, didn't write that down, you can check that out. And again, thank you so much, Katie. Love this conversation. Uh, truly enjoyed it. Thanks so much, guys. Stay safe and, and have fun. Thanks for listening to the Growth Equation podcast. Learn more about our work and find show notes at our website, www.thegrowtheq.com. Follow us on Twitter at B. Stahlberg and at Steve Magnus. And if you like what you listen to, please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, as this goes a long way in helping it reach others.